Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would be our teacher tonight, or this morning, excuse me, that your Holy Spirit would just minister to each heart. And Lord, we do thank you that you are a risen and living Savior. And Lord, that your word is living and breathing. Lord, may it minister to each one who's here. We thank you and we praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Emphasis of John's gospel is the deity of Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? It means that Jesus Christ is God. Amen? He's not one of many gods. He's not a God. He didn't become a God. He's not a created being. He is God. And that's what John is really all about. The emphasis is on the deity of Jesus Christ. Throughout the Gospel of John, we'll get to 12 in just a moment, but throughout the Gospel of John, he makes seven what are called I am statements. The same I am that was used at the burning bush, ego ami, which means I am. And when they said, when, when we go back and, and deliver the people out of bondage in Israel and we tell them who sent us, what will we tell them your name is? As God spoke to Moses from the burning bush, he said, tell them that I am that I am. His name is I am. And so as Jesus made these I am statements, he's very clearly proclaiming himself to be God, but he's also revealing his character as to what kind of person our God is. Now, first of all, he said, I am the bread of life in John 6, which means that he's the only one that can feed us spiritually. You know what? You can go to all the yogis and all the gurus and everybody else under the sun that you want, and you're not going to get fed spiritually. Why? Because they need to be born again themselves. And so if they're spiritually dead and their trespasses and sins, they cannot feed you. Only Jesus Christ can. Amen? And only from his word. He is the light of the world. Everybody else walking around without Christ is walking in the dark, and he illuminates, he illuminates darkness. You know, you bring light into a dark room, it immediately gets light. And people talk about Santa Cruz being a dark place, and no doubt it is, but you know what? We serve a risen and living Savior who's the light of the world, and he's called us to be the light of Santa Cruz. Amen? And so he's the light of the world. He said two weeks ago, he's the door of the sheep. He's the only path to green pastures and the only path to protection. And then lastly, we saw that he's a good shepherd. And it's interesting that in the Old Testament, they would sacrifice the sheep for the shepherd. But as we've been talking about, in the New Testament, it was the shepherd who laid down his life for us, his sheep. And then last week, we saw Jesus make the statement that he indeed is the resurrection and the life. And the way that he proved it was he raised a man from the dead. Now, I want to tell you something. You start raising people from the dead, you got my attention. Amen? And here's Jesus. They have a guy, Lazarus, one of his closest friends in the world, is dead. And the word comes to him that Lazarus is is, is sick. And it says that the Lord waited two more days, and then he went to Lazarus. And by the time he got there, he had been dead for four days. Now, the message he sent to, to Mary and Martha, his sisters, was that this sickness was not unto death, but yet he died. And so they didn't quite understand the word. You know, well, we don't understand. He said it was sickness was not unto death, but when he showed up, Lazarus was dead. But he also said that the sickness was that the Son of Man might be glorified. And so what happened was, after he'd been dead four days, Jesus came and said, Lazarus, come forth. And we know what happened is a dead guy came hopping out of a tomb. And you know what? When he came hopping out of the tomb, no doubt it was, he became, immediately came a huge testimony. And we're going to see how the Jews respond to the testimony. So he raises this dead man to life, and the Jews only have one thought. They put a death warrant out on our Savior. Why? Because Jesus Christ and, and him raising Lazarus from the dead was too heavy of a testimony. He was drawing people away from the temple and drawing people unto himself. The people of the temple had gotten away from knowing the true and the living God, and they got really religious. And here's the sad part, guys. Religion won't save you. It's got to be a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The word religion is relingara. means to relink sinful man back to holy God. And that's absolutely the case. But what's happened is people become religious and they miss the Savior. 
And so we're going to pick up this morning in John 12, and we're going to see the different reactions that men have to Jesus. Maybe, so, maybe one of these is going to describe you this morning. And I titled the message, Passion. People have a passion for something. What do you have a passion for? And as we go through the text this morning, we're going to see different peoples have a passion. And then we're also, lastly, we're going to see Jesus' passion as we close out the chapter. So we're going to see first that Mary anoints Jesus' feet as she has a passion for worship. Judas is going to accuse Mary's gift of being a waste of money because his passion was for money and he had a heart and a greedy heart. The chief priests are going to plot to kill Lazarus because their passion was for position and they're going to envy him. On Jesus' triumphal entry, the, the Jewish people are going to have a passion for a religious leader to come and overthrow the government. They have a, a passion for a political agenda, but guess what? They don't really have a passion for the Lord. And then we're going to see, lastly, the, the passion that the Greeks had as they came seeking Jesus, and then we're going to see the passion of our Savior. So let's begin in verse 1 of John chapter 12. We're going to look at man's reaction to Jesus and the passions that they have, beginning in verse 1. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. Now remember again, six days, uh, this is six days before Passover. Now Passover is the, is the time when Jesus would be crucified, but Passover was an Old Testament uh, feast, or, or remembrance of when they were delivered out of bondage in Egypt. But the Passover all points to Jesus Christ, every bit of it. Because when they took the Passover, they took the blood of a firstborn spotless lamb and they put it at the top of the door and both sides of the doorpost and down at the foot of the door. If you've seen the Ten Commandments, you've seen this, right? And what's that a picture of? It's a picture of the cross. The blood of the firstborn spotless lamb is a picture of Jesus Christ. So Passover is coming, and people are coming into Jerusalem in droves to celebrate and remember their deliverance from bondage in Egypt. Now, it's interesting that when they get there, they go to Bethany. And Bethany means house of song or house of affliction. And it's really going to be both of those in the text today, because one's going to be rejoicing, and another, Judas, is going to be ridiculing. Lazarus' name means God has helped. And I like that. Because you know what? Lazarus couldn't get out of the grave by himself. And you cannot save yourself either. Amen? You can't, you can't try hard enough to hop out of your grave clothes. God has to call you and you need to respond. And that's the only thing that can happen. And that's what happened with Lazarus. And so it sees here in verse 2 it says, And they made him a supper. And Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a, a pound of very costly oil and anointed the feet of Jesus. Now here we see the, the passion of Mary, but we also see a picture in these three people of, of things that we ought to be seeing in the life of believers. First of all, in Martha, we, see, we always see Martha doing what? What is she always doing? She's always serving. And as Christians, we should be serving others. That's what God's called us to do. Now, Lazarus was just a testimony to the power of God just by being there. You know, if, if people show up to your funeral, and then you show up at work the week, a week later, that's a testimony without you saying anything. Amen? You come walking into work. Dude, I was at your funeral, right? I mean, people are going to be blown away. And you know what? As Christians, when we've been transformed by Jesus Christ, we ought to be so different that people ought to just be in shock just watching us live. Amen? So a heart to serve others, and then a testimony to the power of God. And then lastly, Mary had a true heart to worship. Every time we see Mary, where's she at? At Jesus' feet. 
every time. And that's a great place to be. Mary had a love for God, and she would find herself at the feet of the Savior. So we should serve, we should witness, and we should worship. And it says here that Mary took a pound of very costly oil. Let me talk to you about this for just a moment. This is one of the most incredible acts of worship anywhere in the Bible because this oil was not just any oil. This oil had a value. It was very costly. It was worth 300 denarii, or in today's terms, about a year's wages. It was the most valuable thing that Mary had. As a matter of fact, when you look in the other Gospels, it was in an alabaster flask, which means that this oil was so pungent and so powerful that it had to be kept encased in this beautiful stone flask that was real delicate and carved out specifically for it. And Jewish women would typically keep it on their mantle because it was their most valued possession and it was their dowry for their wedding day. When they got married, that was the gift that they gave. So here's Mary taking the most valuable thing that she has and she brings it to the Lord and we're going to see what she does with it. It says there, and she anointed the feet of Jesus. When you look at all the Gospels together, she broke it and she poured some of it on his head and the rest of it on his feet. And that aroma of this this incredibly expensive oil just poured up all over our Savior. So she took this alabaster flask and she gave it to him. This thing that was set aside for her wedding day. But what's awesome about this is that she understood, unlike nobody else, that Jesus was the groom. She understood that Jesus Christ was going to die. They would use this anointing oil when people were buried. And it's interesting that when her brother died, she didn't use it. But now here's the Savior. And he's going to the cross. Mary's heard him say it because she sits at his feet. She understands. And she brings her most valuable possession. And she pours it out on his head and on his feet. Now, one other thing I love about this is before that oil could be poured out, the flask had to be what? had to be broken. And do you know, I've said this many times, that the only thing that becomes more valuable when broken is us. When we are broken before God, there's a sweet aroma that comes from our lives. When it's no longer about me and my will and my passions and my desires, and it becomes about Him, and we're broken before Him, there's a sweet aroma that pours out. And so too should you and I, as we come to worship the Lord, be broken. Now next, what does she do after she anoints His head? and his feet. It says there that she wiped his feet with her hair. In 1 Corinthians 1.15 it says, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory to her, for her hair was given to her as a covering. Though Jewish women would never take their hair down because it was their glory. And what Mary's saying here is, it's not about my glory, but it's about your glory. I'm giving you my most treasured possession, and I'm going to remove my glory, and I'm going to wipe your feet. Lord, my glory is only worthy of wiping your feet, of honoring you, of worshiping you. Mary has a passion. Her passion is for Jesus Christ, and it drives her to give all that she has to the Lord and to have a heart to worship Him. If your passion is for Jesus, you're going to love to worship. Amen? Worship is so awesome. By the way, worship is one of the few things we do on earth we're going to do in heaven. Amen? We're not going to be reading the Bible in heaven. Because Jesus, the Word, is going to be there. Amen? We're not going to be witnessing in heaven because everybody's already going to be saved. Amen? But we are going to be worshiping in heaven. And if you want to get a taste of heaven, worship. Man, you know, people that worship, your life will be transformed. Mary understood. She took her most valuable possession. And look what it says lastly. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. 
Mary's act of love and devotion and worship brought fragrance to the whole house. You know, no house is so pleasant, has so pleasant as an aroma as a house where Jesus Christ is given his rightful place. Ever been into a home where people just love God? You walk into the house and it's different. Worship music's playing. God's being lifted up. And then you go into a home where they have no idea who God is, and there's something different about it. And there's a sweet aroma when we lift up and magnify the name of Jesus Christ, and we honor Him in our homes, and our houses are set apart to Him. Our, our worship even now is a sweet aroma in the presence of God. Mary's passion was for Jesus. Her true heart was for worship. She thought nothing of herself. She humbled herself. She gave God her most valued possession. Now let's move on and look at an opposite extreme in response to Christ. You've got Mary giving all that she has, giving her most valued possession to the Lord, worshiping Him, saying, Lord, not my glory, but Your glory. And then we run into a guy by the name of Judas. Look at verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had a money box and he used to take what was put in it. Mary was driven out of her love for the Lord. She had a passion for God and was driven to worship. Judas had one passion and that was for dinero. Judas was all about the money. Judas was show me the money. That was Judas, right? He would later betray Jesus Christ for one-tenth of the amount of money that, this one, that Mary just poured out on Jesus' feet. She took 300 denarii and poured it out on his feet, and Judas would betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a common slave. Notice Judas' first word. This is his first recorded word in the Bible, verse 5. His first word is why. It's appropriate. Not, not yes, Lord, but Why? And the most tra- this guy's one of the most tragic people in the entire Bible because he had walked with Jesus for three years, he had seen him perform the miracles, he had heard him teach the Word of God, and yet still money was more important to him. You know, maybe you're here this morning, and money has become your God. I want to encourage you with something. If your God is anything you can lose, look at the stock market. If your job is anything you can, money, if your passion is anything you can use, your God is anything you can lose, then you need to change it. Amen? Because the Bible says we cannot serve God and mammon. You know what? All the money belongs to the Lord. It's all His. And we're to use it for His glory. And us having money is not sinful or wrong. It's just when we place it in front of God that it is. Amen? And Judas missed the Savior because he was looking for the money. This guy was still rotten to the core. Instead of seeking to, to worship the Lord from a sacrificial heart, he was only cared about one thing. And it's interesting, the word here for thief is clopas. It's where we get the word kleptomaniac. And that's the kind of guy Judas was. He's walking right by the Savior, and he's missing him because his eyes were on the physical. May we, as followers of Christ, not be so focused on the world that we miss out on the Savior. So we see Judas's passion. His passion is for money, and it drove him to be a man who was filled with a greedy heart. Verse 7. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have with you always. Now Jesus is not downplaying us reaching out to the poor. The Bible says that pure and undefiled religion is to minister to the orphans and the widows. You know, our heart here at Calvary Chapel is that money should never be an issue when it comes to anything. And we're here to minister to you. We're here to bless you, to encourage you, to pray for you, to help you financially. That's why we're here. 
We don't ask you to give. We desire to give to you. You give to the Lord as God puts it on your heart. You probably noticed we don't uh, uh, pass an offering plate here. And the reason we don't, we don't want anybody to give for the wrong reason. You give because you love the Lord. And we're here to minister to you. So he's not downplaying giving to the poor, but what he's saying is this. He's revealing that there is a higher priority than any other earthly ministry. More important than building houses for the poor or digging wells for the poor or or giving to people, the most important ministry of all is worshiping Jesus Christ. Amen? Above all else. And as we worship Him, we will minister to others. But He's saying, look, she took and gave to the Lord. And there's nothing greater you can do than give it to Almighty God. Mary would not always have the opportunity to worship Jesus this way. And I want to encourage us, may we not be so busy doing works for the Lord that we miss out on ministering to the Lord. Amen? Not so busy doing stuff for the Lord that we miss out on that intimacy of ministering to the Lord. Having that one-on-one intimate fellowship with Him. He he desires above all else to be your Lord, your Savior, and even your best friend. Verse 9. Now a great many of the Jews knew that He was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also. You want to talk about someone with an agenda. A guy's been risen from the dead, and instead of trying to find out, whoa, that's heavy, let's find out what happened, they say, you know what? This Lazarus thing's putting a major dent on our income. Because, you know, when he raises people from the dead, then people stop coming to temple and they start going out to see Jesus instead. we got to kill that guy. If we kill him, then he won't be walking around and he won't be that testimony anymore. And maybe people will start coming back so we can, we can start pounding on him again and making him give us stuff, right? These guys had their own agenda. The chief priests are going to plot to kill Jesus, because, or Lazarus, excuse me, and Jesus as well, because Lazarus was one who made many of the Jews believe. That's what it says, that many of the Jews believed because of Lazarus. They all should have. Amen? Every one of them. But yet they still didn't want to give up the throne of their life. They still wanted to be in charge. Those who draw others to the Lord are enemies of Satan and of a lost world, and they will come under attack and persecution. Rather than simply believe the irrefutable evidence, they chose to try to destroy it. You know what? You can live a life sold out for Jesus Christ. There are going to be people that don't like you very much. Amen? And you know what? The Bible says, Oh, how happy. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you for my name's sake. It's a great thing. It just means God's using you. You know, when things go sideways in my life, when difficulty comes, it makes me want to say one word, and the word is charge. It just means God's doing something great. Oh, praise the Lord. God's going to do something good. Through our trials, God is faithful and God is in control. And we see here they want to put Lazarus to death because he's a testimony. You know what? I know that Satan doesn't like me, but that's okay. I don't like him either. Amen? And the good news is that every time he reminds me of my past, I just tell him about his future. Amen? And and I just remember the fact that God is victorious. He's a great and an awesome God, and we serve Him and Him alone, and we have nothing to fear because God is faithful. So they wanted to be on the throne. They wanted to be receiving the praise of men instead of trusting God. Look at verse 11. Because on account of Him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. And man, they didn't like that. People believing in Jesus is the the enemy of Satan. He doesn't want it. So Mary's passion was for Jesus, and it drove her to worship. Judah's passion was for money, and it drove him to be greedy. The chief priest's passion was for position, and it drove them to be envious of those being used by God. Verse 12, triumphal entry. 
The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, I want you to see something here, and I'm going to take a moment to explain this because this is powerful. The next day, this would now be Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, we're just, a, we're just five days away from the beginning of Passover. Several things happened on that day. First of all, all the people who were coming to make sacrifice in Jerusalem, that was the day that they brought their animals to be inspected by the priest. So as you walked into Jerusalem, you would have seen thousands upon thousands of lambs and, and other animals being brought in for the priest to look at to make sure that they were firstborn, spotless lambs worthy to be sacrificed. Who's the Lamb of God? Jesus Christ. And so as Jesus is going to be coming into Jerusalem, there are going to be lambs everywhere. You're going to hear the, the, the braying of these lambs all over, right? And, and Jesus is coming in at that very moment. Why? Because it was divinely appointed before the foundation of the world. This is also one of the most awesome prophecies you're ever going to see. Because back in the Old Testament, in Daniel chapter 9, it says this, and bear with me for a second. From the going forth of the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince comes into Jerusalem, there shall be 69 sevens or 483 years. On March 14, 445 B.C., King Artaxerxes gave the command to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, 483 years times 360 days a year is 173,880 days. Guess what happened 173,880 days after the very day that King Artaxerxes gave the command to rebuild Jerusalem, Jesus came, mar- came into Jerusalem on a donkey. April 6th, 32 AD, fulfilling prophecy, he comes in the very moment, the very day that had been prophesied 500 plus years earlier. From the moment that the the command went out to the moment Christ came walking in, it was all foreordained. Why? Because he's God and he knows everything. Amen? You look in the Bible, it's just a picture of Jesus all over the place. The prophecy points to who he really is. And the world's walking around looking for answers. Let me tell you right now, if you're looking for the answer, the answer is Jesus Christ. The reality is if they'd been studying their Bibles like they should have, they should have been lying in the streets waiting for him. They should have said, oh, he's coming. He's going to be here. It's, a, it's been 173,820, 60 more days. They should have been having like countdowns at the temple. 60 more days till Messiah, right? But because of their biblical ignorance, because they did not spend time in God's word, they missed the Messiah. And so too, did you guys know that Jesus Christ is coming back? Amen? Amen. That was weak. Amen. He's coming back, okay? And we need to be ready and living, in the, and we should be studying the word to know that the time is short. Every time there's another missile going off in the Middle East, I'm just doing this. Because the Bible says, look up for your redemption draweth nigh. God is faithful. He's in control. We can trust Him. We need to make hay while the sun's shining, which means we need to be sharing our faith till He comes back. But we need to be people ready and knowing that He could come back at any moment. And here, these people missed the Messiah because they were ignorant to Scripture. Now what did they do? It says that Jesus came to Jerusalem. It says they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him. Now it's interesting that Almost 200 years earlier, there was a man by the name of Judas Maccabees. Now, Judas Maccabees had entered into a nine-year battle with the Syrian government. The Syrian government was ran by a guy by the name of Antichus Epiphanes. How many ever heard of that guy? He's a type or a picture of the Antichrist. This guy was wicked. He was slaughtering people, and he went into the temple, and he slit a pig's throat, 
and spilled its blood on the altar. Pigs would be an unclean animal, right, to the Jews. And he split its throat and he spilt the blood and he made the priest drink the pig's blood. This guy was wicked. And Judas Maccabees got into a, and his, they mounted up an army and they overthrew Antiochus Epiphanes and reclaimed Israel. And so what they did is to welcome him or to praise him, they took palm branches instantaneously and began to wave them at Judas Maccabees. And it was a way of saying, for military might and for political deliverance. And it's interesting that right after that they put the palm leaf on their coins from then on to remember their deliverance from political bondage, their deliverance from military might. Now as Jesus comes in, they're waving these same branches. What do they want Jesus to do? They want Jesus to overthrow Rome. They're saying, you know what, we're under the same oppression that they were under. And here comes one. Maybe it's the next Judas Maccabees. We've heard he's raised the dead. He can no doubt wipe out the Romans. Let's wave these palm branches on it, at him. And then they began to cry out, Hosanna. What does Hosanna mean? It means save now. Save us now, we pray. And they're not saying save us now from our sin because we're sinners in desperate need of a Savior. They're saying save us from the government. So these, this crowd had a political agenda. Does that sound familiar? They had a political agenda. It was all about politics. That was their focus and their heart and their passion. Man, my passion is not for politics. My passion is for Jesus Christ. Amen? And again, we should vote. We should do those things. But that's not my passion. My passion is for the Lord, and it should be our passion. So these people began to, to, to wave and sing, Hosanna, Hosanna. But it's interesting that we know their real hearts because not many days from now, these Hosannas are going to change to crucify Him. When he doesn't come in and overthrow the government like they were looking for, when he doesn't you know, go in and t get after the Romans and start using his power for their own physical comfort, they go, oh, dude, this isn't what we were, we didn't, we didn't sign up for this. This is not what we want. Crucify him. They're going to go from one degree to another. And sadly, there are many people today that they, they want to follow God only if, if he fulfills their physical desires. You know, I'll try God for a while and see how that works out. You know, I've tried, I've tried, you know, my career path, I've tried this, let me try God for a while. Oh, that's not really working out, so they go another direction. The same is true of these guys here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Prophetic truth, they were shouting, it was like a parade. Jesus coming in, they're shouting from the sidelines of the parade. They're screaming his name, Hosanna, glory, waving branches. But sadly, they didn't truly understand or know who he was, verse 14 and 15. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, said on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. That's a, a reference to Israel. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This is the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9 that says that the Messiah would not only come into Jerusalem, that he would come riding on a donkey. And Jesus, being God, again, fulfills what had been prophesied. When Jesus comes next on, donkey's an animal of peace. When Jesus comes next time, what's he riding? A white horse, the Bible says, and a horse is an animal of war. Daughter of Zion, again, a term for Israel. Verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him, that they had done these things in him. You know, the sad part is that his disciples were sitting right there, but they didn't understand it, and they didn't know and they didn't fully get it until Jesus was glorified. 
And I find for my own life that my understanding of God and his word is better and better and better the more I lift him up. Amen? The more I glorify him, the greater my understanding is. The more I die to myself of my will and I, and I honor and, and glorify his name, the greater my understanding of what life is all about. When Jesus is glor- being glorified in your life, you'll have more understanding. Verse 17. Therefore the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, raised him and raised him from the dead, bore witness. They got up and said, dude! This is the one. You should have been there. I'm telling you, it was incredible. I went to the funeral, and then we went back four days later, and Lazarus came up out of the grave. I, dude, go ask him. I'm telling you. Come here, man. Tell him. I'm, for real. This is the guy. Oh. And they bore witness that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. But look what it says. For this reason the people met him, because they heard he had done this sign. Many come to Jesus seeking a sign. They're curious about the signs and the wonders and the miracles, but they're not really seeking a Savior that they can lay down their lives before. Verse 19. The, Phar- the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Though outwardly again it appeared that the crowd was going after him, like they said here, we know these hosannas would become crucify him. They would free Barabbas instead of Jesus. They would cry out for a murderer to be let go instead of our Savior. They would mock Jesus at the cross. And again, they'd have the outward appearance, but inwardly they missed the Savior. You know what? They're willing to shout at a parade, Hosanna, but they were not willing to give their knee and put their knee down and kneel at the cross of Christ. Many want to shout from the parade, but they don't want to kneel before the Savior. And so Mary's passion was for Jesus, and it drove her to worship. Judah's passion was for money, and it drove him to be greedy. The chief priest's passion was for position, and it drove him to envy. And this Passover crowd's passion was for political revolt, and it drove them to see Jesus only with physical eyes and desire a physical conqueror. You know what? We don't need a king of the world. We need a a savior of the universe. Amen? We don't need an earthly king. We've got a king, and it's Jesus Christ. And it's him that we follow. Verse 20. Now, when, now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish, to, we wish to see Jesus. Man, those are some good words right there. They didn't come and say, we want to see a sign. Where's the guy that was raising people from the dead? We're looking for someone to walk on some water. Where do we buy tickets for that show? Right? Instead, they said, we want to see Jesus. Should that not be our heart, to see the Lord, to see him high and lifted up, to have that intimate relationship with him? These guys got it. They came. It's interesting. At, at Jesus' birth, wise men came from the east seeking Jesus. And at Jesus' death, Gentiles, just like the wise men from the west, came seeking Jesus. And the Jews who were right there missed him. The people that were sitting right there. The Gentiles came from the east at his birth. The Gentiles came from from the west at his death. And the Jews who were sitting right there missed the Savior completely. Verse 22. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. you got to love Andrew. What's Andrew always doing in the Bible? We talked about this. He's always bringing people to Jesus. You see Andrew, he goes and grabs... Who brought Peter to Jesus? Andrew. Andrew's always grabbing folks and saying, you know, and I want to encourage you with something. Maybe you don't feel like you can get up and give a doctrinal thesis on, on, you know, the Bible to all your friends at school. 
Maybe you can't sit down and explain to them theology. You can give them your testimony, and you can invite them to church. Amen? You know what? What are you doing Sunday? Why don't you come with me? Be an Andrew. Come and see. Come and see what God's doing. Come to a Bible study. You know, come, come with me to a Christian concert. Invite them to something where they're going to be exposed to the truth of the gospel. It's not that Andrew did it, and God used him mightily, and God will use us if we'll just be like Andrew. The Greeks' passion was truth, and they sought after Jesus. So now we've seen the people. We've seen how they respond. How does our Savior respond to the people? And this is what we're going to close with, looking at Jesus' response to the people. Look at verse 23. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man be glorified. Now, many believe that one of the reasons the Greeks came was they knew that the Jews wanted to kill Jesus, and they may have come and said, You know what, Lord, why don't you come with, come with us? We don't want to kill you. We want to, we want to know you. Leave these guys behind. They just want to kill you anyway. Why don't you come with us? And Jesus turns to them and says, The hour has come that the Son of Man be glorified. Jesus' heart was not to get away, but was to do the will of the Father. How do you live a glorious Christian life? Jesus said for the, for the Son of Man to be glorified, what would he have to do? What would he have to do, guys? He'd have to die. What do we have to do? to live a glorious Christian life. We've got to die to ourselves and to our will. Verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. We're all like grains of wheat. We're worth nothing until we're willing to die. The only way to truly see Jesus is in the light of His death, burial, and resurrection. To see Him in the light of Calvary. To realize that He died and that He, that he might be multiplied in a sense, right? that He would reach out and minister to us. And so too, when we die, then the ministry that God's given us to do will be multiplied. It's when we get in the way that we mess it up. Verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for the eternal. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. This is Jesus' last public teaching. And what does he say? Die to self, your will, your desires, your plans. He doesn't say, find yourself. Amen? He doesn't say, pamper yourself, esteem yourself, assert yourself. That's noise. You know, it's even in the church today. Psychology. It's contrary to the Bible. Oh man, people are going to get mad at me now. I know that, but that's okay. Here's the reality psychology says esteem self. The Bible says deny self. Do you see a contradiction there? Just a little bit, right? I mean, the Bible says that we need to deny self that he might be lifted up. And psychology, you need to think more of yourself. My, you know what? My problem is I think about myself too much. Amen? I esteem myself way too stinking much. That's my problem. It's always about me. Isn't it always about you? Aren't you always on your mind, right? Aren't you always thinking about you, right? How is it going to impact me? And the Lord's saying, it's got to stop being about you. It's got to start being about Him. It's got to stop being about what do I want, what's going to comfort me, what's going to bless me, but how can I honor Him? How can I glorify Him? How can I reflect Him? If anyone desires to lose his life, he will gain it. You let go of that which is perishing, you will gain that which is eternal. Give away the deck chair on the sinking ship, on the Titanic. Quit fighting over deck chairs on the Titanic. And you know what? And fall in love with Jesus. 
and you'll give away a life that you cannot keep. A man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Amen? And that's what Jesus' message is here. He's saying, give away the stuff that won't last. Live for yourself, and you'll miss God. Die to yourself, and you'll find out what life is all about. It's not about me. It's all about Him. Verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Why was Jesus' soul troubled? He's not many days away from what? The cross. He knew that he was about to be tortured, beaten, afflicted, and ultimately separated from the Father. And you know what? When we deny ourselves and take up the cross and follow the Lord, when we serve Him with our whole heart, we're still going to face times of suffering. We're going to face trials. We're going to face difficulty in our lives. And you know what? We can respond in one of two ways. Father, save me. And that's a good prayer, but not, not in this context. It's, Lord, get me out of this mess. Or we can say, Father, glorify your name in the midst of this mess. Amen? You know what, Lord? Use my circumstances for your glory. Have you ever noticed the people used most in the Bible are the ones going through the most difficult stuff? Have you ever figured that out? I want to be like Daniel. Oh, okay. Get ready to be thrown to a lion's den, right? Get ready to be ripped away from your family at a young age and thrown into captivity. I'd like to be like Paul. Okay, day and night in the deep, hunger's often, starvation often. All right, nakedness, oh yeah, okay. But see, we, we, want, we want to be spiritually mature, but we don't want to go through the trials that get us there, right? We don't want, when we get in a trial, we just want to get out. Quickly, I went out of it. And he says, you know what? He said, this is the reason I have come. Not get me out of this mess, but Father, glorify your name in the midst of it. This is why you brought me here. Why did God create you? Why did God create me? Because he loves us and to conform us, to have a relationship with us and to conform us more to his image. And look what it says here. Then a voice came from heaven. I like that when that happens. A voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Again, he spoke at his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. His voice came out at the transfiguration. And here again, the sky opens up and God speaks. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. I'm thinking major revival, right? You would think a lot of folks, you know, sky opens up and God starts speaking. That would be enough for me, right? But sadly, most of these people are still going to be the ones saying crucify him, crucify him, instead of repenting of their sin. We're almost done. Verse 29. Therefore the people who stood by heard it and said, it thundered. Others said, oh, it, it was an angel. You know, it's amazing when God speaks, people want to give excuses for what happened. It's a rainbow. Well, that's because of the sign of the molecules. And the, no, God put it there. Amen? God put the rainbow there. Every time you see a rainbow, oh, that's God's promise not to flood the earth again. That's God. Creation cries out his name. And we want to, oh, that, yeah, it's, it's because the molecules. No, it's not, because God put it there. Now, it's a scientific fact that God used the molecules to make it happen, but God did it. Amen? And we need to quit explaining things away and giving excuses why. You mean lightning hit a puddle and, a, and an amoeba scratched, you know, and grew and they got legs and scratched a freckle and then started flying around now? It's you? I ain't believing that noise. How about you? Amen? But people would rather believe that and trust in a God who created us. A perfect and a holy God. And these guys, oh, it, was, it, it was thunder. I, yeah, it sounded like thunder to me. I think thunder, right? Because they don't want to repent. They don't want to give away the throne of their lives. They want to continue to lift themselves up. 
Jesus had walked on water, he'd raised the dead, he had taught with authority, fulfilled prophecy, and they still didn't believe it. Verse 30, Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Jesus didn't need an audible voice to hear from the Father. And neither do you and I. Amen? I talk with God all day, every day. I wake up in the morning, first two words, yes, Lord, put God on speakerphone, and just keep talking to him until I go to sleep. Amen? That's the God that we serve. He desires to have that intimate fellowship with us. It's not the God we check in with on Easter and Christmas. If you're here for Easter, God bless you, I'm glad you're here. But if you're checking in with him twice a year, I want to encourage you, don't wait twice a year to, to show up. And, and, and again, we're glad you're here. God bless you guys, okay? But you know what? It should be a daily relationship, not once or twice a year because it's religion. Verse 31. Now is, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Jesus is saying when he died, he not only triumphed over sin and over death, but he triumphed over Satan. Verse 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. What does lifted up mean? Who knows? It means crucified. It's got a twofold meaning here. Jesus says, before he has been crucified, he predicts the exact form of his death. And when he's lifted up means crucified, and it also means glorified. Isaiah 52 says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Jesus had to be crucified that he might be glorified. You and I must die to our will and our passions and ourself. We battle between the spirit and the flesh. When I was a youth pastor, I used to give this analogy. You got the fleshly tiger and the spiritual tiger, and they're each battling for control of your life. And which one wins the battle? The one you feed the most, right? If you never feed yourself spiritually and you got a spiritual tiger the size of a gnat and all you're doing is carnally feeding your flesh all day long and it's the size of Godzilla, you got trouble, right? But we need to be feeding ourselves spiritually. We need to be in the Word and in prayer and in fellowship and seeking after God. And then when, we, when temptation comes, we will be able to overcome it in the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, all, I will draw all peoples unto myself. He draws the young, he draws the old, he draws the rich, he draws the poor. He doesn't care what country you're from, what color your skin is. He doesn't care about any of that. Man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. And we're all his kids and adopted into his family if we will just cry out and say, Lord, save me. Amen? Make me, your, make, make me a new creation in you. Last couple verses, verse 32. Thus he said, signifying by what death he would die. And the people answered and said, We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can the Son of Man be lifted up? They understood what he was talking about. They said, How do you say, we, we know the Son of Man is going to live forever. How can you say he's going to be lifted up? How can he die? And then they followed up with, Who is the Son of Man? They understood it meant death, and they equated death with the end. Let me make it real clear, guys. We're going to be dead a lot longer than we're alive. Amen? I mean, physically dead. But for Christians, we don't die. We just move to a much better neighborhood. Amen? You close your eyes on earth, and you open them up in glory. I said this a couple weeks ago. In real estate, it's location, location, location. Amen? And you know what? We're going to be in the location with the Savior. We're going to close them here and open them up in His presence. And these guys equated death with the end, and they missed the Savior. Verse 35, And Jesus said, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. The people didn't get it. 
They'd seen the miracles. They'd heard all about Jesus. But he's saying, the light's only going to be with you a little while longer. You know what, guys? Let me encourage you with something. If God brought you here this morning, and he obviously did because you're here, today's the day of salvation. Amen? Amen. Don't wait. Oh, well, I've got to you know, quit smoking. Then I can say, I've got to quit drinking. I've got to quit this. I've got to quit my swearing. I've got to start being a better husband, a better father. You know what? You just need to come to the cross with your sin and say, Lord, forgive me. And he will. He's a great and an awesome God. Today's the day of salvation. The light won't be shining forever. At some point, we'll stand before Almighty God on Judgment Day, and it'll be too late to make a decision then. So let me ask you this. This is how I want to close. Mary's passion was for Jesus, and it drove her to worship. Judas's passion was for money, and it drove him to be greedy. The chief priest's passion was for position, and it drove them to envy. The crowd's passion was for a political revolt, and it drove them to seek after someone who would overthrow the government. Jesus' passion is for you. The Bible says that you are his treasured possession. What is he passionate about? What is he passionate for? You. And where did it drive him? To the cross. If money's my passion, it'll drive me to be greedy. You are Jesus' passion, and it drove him to the cross because he loves you so very much. He would rather die than live without you. That's the God we serve. And he doesn't want you just to know about him. I know about Michael Jordan. I could tell you that he went to North Carolina. He won six championships. He played for the Bulls. He just retired again. He's playing for the Wizards. If I get in an elevator with Michael Jordan, that guy's got no idea who I am. Because I know about him, but I don't know him. And you may know about Jesus Christ. You may know when he lived and how he died and that he rose from the dead. But it's more than knowing about him. You must know him. When you stand before God, is he going to say, depart from me for I know you not, or enter in my good and faithful servant? Are you, his, his, are you his son? Are you his daughter? Has he adopted you into his family? You know what? To be adopted into his family, you don't have to do 75 good works. You don't have to join Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz. All you have to do is say, yes, I know that I'm a sinner, and Lord, I want you to be my Savior. It's that simple. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved to the glory of the Father. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray if there's even one person here that does not know you, that by divine appointment, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that their eyes would be open to their need for you. Lord, that they would not leave this place without you. Father, just I pray that you would cause them to respond, not because of the words of a man, not because of a, an eloquent speech or convincing argument, but Lord, because the Holy Spirit has drawn them, that first they see that they are sinners, that every one of us in this room is a sinner. And Lord, but because of our sin, we cannot enter into heaven. So Lord, I pray they would see their need for that forgiveness because heaven will be without sin. So Lord, I just pray there's even one here this morning that they would not be ashamed of you, that just as you hung for us on a cross, that they would make a stand for you this morning. With every head bowed, real quickly. If you're here this morning and during the message, God was speaking to you that, you know what, I need to give my life to Jesus Christ. Uh, maybe I've known about him, but I don't know him. He's not been my passion. And I want to walk out of here knowing that I'm going to heaven, that my name's written in the Lamb's book of life. I want to give my life to him. If you're here this morning, I'm just going to ask you to do something real simple. I just want you to raise your hand saying publicly, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. Is there anybody here at all? God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? Don't leave, don't leave home without him, right? Don't go home without him. Is heaven your home? Is he your savior?
Is your passion for Him? Let's pray with these. Heavenly Father, and everybody repeat after me. Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning and I confess that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me for my sin, to make me a new creation, to fill me with your Holy Spirit. I believe that Jesus Christ is God, that he died on the cross, that he paid for my sin, that he rose from the dead, and that he's coming back. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Can I give you some good news? If you prayed that prayer right now, the Bible says that all the angels in heaven are rejoicing right now. There's a party up in heaven. And the Bible says that you've been adopted into his family and no one will ever snatch you out of his hand. And appropriately, we are now going to have communion. Now let me tell you what communion is. Communion is in remembrance of Jesus' death on the cross. And it is totally in remembrance of that. And I want to encourage you with this. We don't have members at Calvary Chapel. You show up, you're a member. That's how it works. Your family, you come. You've given your life to Jesus Christ. You're a part of this church, okay? When we take communion, the blood, the juice represents his blood, and the cracker represents his body. His body was broken for us, and he shed his blood to pay for our sin. And as we do this, we do this in remembrance of him. Now, it's for anybody who wants to take it, but you must be a Christian to do it because it's in remembrance of what Christ did for you. And the day is coming soon when we will drink it again with him in heaven. That's what the Bible says. Amen? And so right now we're going to have a, the worship team is going to play some songs. Just everybody get on up, come up, grab it. We just take it ourselves. Go back and sit down at your, at your uh, seat and just take communion. If you have family here or someone you want to pray with, pray with them. And then take the elements. And then as soon as that's done, I'll come back up and close us. And we'll have our agape feast. All right? Let me pray for communion. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for the work on the cross. May it never grow common, Lord. And I just pray right now that we would examine our own hearts. Lord, we would seek forgiveness for areas where we've fallen short. And Lord, that we would just be renewed in our faith and our passion for you. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen.